Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. And times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is October 20th, 2014. This is episode 1448 of the Survival Podcast, and it's Monday. You know what Monday is? Monday is when I take your feedback to email, and that email address to send those things to is jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Again, jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Some of you might say thesurvivalpodcast.com. Either way, the the or the the is important. If you do not include it, it will go to some domain squad or not to me. When you send me that email for a show like today, make sure you follow the formula. The formula is put article for Jack, question for Jack, subject for Jack, video for Jack, whatever it is, I don't care. As long as it's one word followed by the words for Jack, that will help me dig your email out of the spam box if the spam monster eats it and make it more likely that your email will get on the air. Now, please remember that I cannot get everybody's emails onto shows like this. I get several hundred emails a day. I put somewhere between six to ten in a show like today. But when I get a, the same subject or something in the same vein from many people, it's more likely to get on the air, even if I only cite one listener as the one that sent it in. Please remember that as well. Before I get to those, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day number one today BulkAmmo.com. BulkAmmo.com helps you complete that triangle of gun operator effectiveness. Remember, there's three things you need to be an effective operator of a firearm. First, you need a gun. Let me explain how this works. Bang, bang does not work when you point your finger at the bad guy and say bang, bang. That's for kids. So you need a gun. You have a good quality firearm. The next thing is you, the operator. You're the linchpin that pulls it all together. But you got to have ammo. Let's say you have a gun. You know what you're doing with it, and you have no ammo in it. Somebody's trying to kill you. Well, that's not going to work. You also need the ammo to train to make you, the operator, that effective linchpin. So you need ammo. You need lots of it so you can train it, so you can run your gun and be proficient with it. And have you noticed when the gun grabbers come after guns that ammo prices go up even before gun prices do? That's because most people have guns, but they know the ammo is the stuff that runs out. I get my ammo from BulkAmmo.com. You should do the same. Check out BulkAmmo.com today. Next up today, Safe Castle Royal, the original survival podcast sponsor. When there was no one else, there was Vic Rontal and Safe Castle saying, Jack, we want to sponsor the survival podcast. And I said, uh, I have like 800 listeners and no idea how I'm going to do this yet. So hold tight. Uh, a few months later, we had a few thousand listeners, and we were ready to go, and Vic was still waiting in the wings and ready to go with us. So we made him the first Survival Podcast sponsor. We built the entire sponsorship program off of Safe Castle and the way that we vetted them to make sure they were a great provider for you. And they've been around with us just forever. I mean, we're talking, it's going to be six years in January. Most podcasts don't last six years. SafeCastle has everything you could imagine for your prepping needs. And they have an amazing discount buyers program. The way the discount buyers program works is really kind of simple. Uh, you sign up, you pay them a fee, and for the rest of your life, you get discounts on everything they do. But if you're a member of the Survival Podcast Support Brigade, you get that discount at no cost whatsoever. You get that membership free. That sells for 49 bucks. My membership's 50 That means your first year of my membership from this one benefit alone effectively costs you a buck. That's why Vic is uh, just such a valued supporter of TSP and the work that we do. And uh, when you're thinking about getting something for your prepping needs, think about how loyal all of our sponsors have been to the show. Uh, we don't have a sponsor that's been with us less than three years at this point. So when you need something for prepping, check to see if you get a discount in the MSB. 
And if you do, great, use it. And if not, still look to do business with one of our sponsors. They're loyal to you, so be loyal to them. On that note, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get uh, great discounts, and you get some exclusive content that's available nowhere else, and you help support the show at about 18.3 cents an episode. So when you get done with an episode of TSP, if you think it's worth two dimes, hey, you know what? Consider joining the MSB and the membership if you're buying stuff in the self-sufficiency, self-reliance, homesteading world will pay for itself in time over and over again. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty and prior service, and first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters, all of you do qualify for a discount. If you email me before, not after you join the support brigade, I'll get you a discount code for that discount. Uh, just put service discount in the subject line. One or two sentences tell me who you are and what you're doing, or who you are and what you did if you're prior service. And remember, This is not just for retired. If you've done any of those jobs for any period of time whatsoever, you do qualify for the service discount to thank you for your service to our nation, either at home and or abroad. But again, do this before, dun, 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 not after you join. If you do it after you join, we'll have to handle it on your renewal. Next up for you today, I have the history segment. The year is 1448, so Alex Shrugged has for us at tspwiki.com, the year 1448. We have... The Worshipful Company of Haberdashers, The Will to Win, The Second Battle of Kosovo. Um, I think you might want to know what a haberdasher is, uh, but I'm not going to tell you. You're going to have to go to tspwiki.com and learn for yourself and read that segment in the show notes today if you want to know about haberdashers and where they came from and what they originally did. I'm going to read The Will to Win, The Second Battle of Kosovo for you today, um, and I have my own unique thoughts as usual apart from Alex Shrugged. The Kingdom of Hungary has been on, Ottoman, on the Ottomans' hit list ever since they took Kosovo from Serbian Prince Lozar in 1389. The Hungarian Crusaders, led by John Hunundi, pushed the Ottoman Turks back, but the Serbian king, George, I'm not even going to try it, brand something, has re remained neutral, so the, his kingdom is not swallowed up by either side. John Hunundi sees anyone who is not on his side automatically for the other side. Just pause there. If you're not with us, you're against us. Uh, that always leads to bad stuff. Anyway, so John has attacked King George. King George informs the Ottoman of John's movements and thus begins the Second Battle of Kosovo. The Hungarian and Albanian forces are outflanked and overrun by the Ottomans. John Hunande is captured and then ransomed back to the, Caner uh, the Hungarians for 100,000 florins. That would be about $13.9 million in today's money. John's fa failure has doomed Hungary to future Ottoman control by Suleiman the Magnificent in 1526. But for now, King George has saved the place. In less than 10 years, King George will die of old age and his son will poison his own mother um, in a fight for the throne. In the chaos, the Turks will annex his kingdom. Um, here's Alex Shrugg's take on this. The basic failure is a lack of the will to win. John Hanunde broke a ceasefire treaty with the Ottomans, even though he had the permission of the Pope to attack the Ottomans and even enslave them. There is an underlying moral problem with breaking one's word that cuts against the grain. Even at this time where many a nobleman's oath is for sale, technically speaking, the Pope can arrogate a treaty like this, but it seems wrong at heart, and it seems foolish. King George was right. The Ottomans were too strong. The Christians couldn't leave well enough alone and take time to build up their forces. The defeat has broken the will of the Christians to win later, at least in, in the Kosovo area, Hungary. Um, I, I have a couple takes on this. Number one, when we 
think back to this time, it's really a harsh time, isn't it? Um, you know, when people are poisoning their own mother in a fight for the throne, that's that's pretty cutthroat. A lot of times, I think we watch, um, you know, these uh, fantasy historical type interwoven things, and some of the things that go on, you think, well, that wouldn't really happen, and much of it's right out of the annals of history. The other thing is, you know, we looked at what went on in the Balkans um, in the '90s, like it was something somewhat new. This part of the world has been plagued with warfare for hundreds, even thousands of years. And there's a lesson, too, in going south of there into that, you know, that Mideast region and the conflicts uh, of a religious nature that are there. Um, sometimes it's better to let people solve their own problems instead of dragging your problems into theirs. That's all I'm saying on this one. My take by Jack Spierko. And, and now we're ready to get in to your feedback and questions uh, for today's show. Actually, no, we're not. It's time for the prepper scenario. Last Monday's prepper scenario was as follows. A series of events has caused a food shortage. Food is available, but many things are hard to come by. And what is available is priced two to three times as high as current prices. A series of events has resulted in this. A bad crop year around the globe from multiple weather events. A new pest and crop diseases compounding it has been an overreactive scare due to potential Ebola pandemics, which has also damaged the economy. Prices are expected to remain high for at least a year. America is getting off easy, and many third-world nations' food riots are now erupting. What do you do during this period? How do you stretch your food budget? How much do you rely on your stored food? Of course, the cost of animal feeds has at least doubled as well, so factor that into your plans. Um, we had a lot of great answers to this one last week, um, and this is where I give you my thoughts on the prior week's one. Uh, the food itself for us wouldn't really be that big of an impact. Uh, even at two to three times prices, we wouldn't be happy about it. We'd have to rebalance our budget. We would certainly continue to prep, and we would try to use our preps as little as possible during this type of a period. My actual concern in this period wouldn't be how do I get through it. It would be what if it gets worse. So I would actually rely on my preps as little as possible, and even under this strain, would be working a little bit here and there to not only increase my production out on my property, but to continue to add to my preps. The place we'd get hit the hardest would be the animal feeds, um, and it would probably prompt me to start storing more dog food, more bird food than we already do. When I say bird food, of course, I mean for my chickens and my ducks and uh, and my geese. We might consume a few more of them. Uh, we might actually do a pretty good business in eggs uh, with the size of the flock that we have now as well if people were having to pay a lot more money for their food. Um, how realistic is this scenario? It's definitely possible. It's not the most realistic one we've ever done, but it's somewhere on the road to economic Armageddon is where it is. And this would be one of those things, if it continued, it would be something that would push you more and more toward an economic collapse or a partial economic collapse. So it is possible, and there's a lot of things that could make it actually happen. I have an extremely, extremely realistic scenario for you today. The reason that I know it's extremely realistic is it happened to me exactly twice in my life already. Um, and I asked Kelly, who's doing the camera work that's being taken on today's show. Oh, by the way, for those out there in the in the listening audience, this entire show, in fact, my entire day is being documented uh, for later viewing on PETV by our video producer, Kelly Hernan, today. And uh, he's got cameras set up everywhere. 
And uh, But I asked him when I came up with the scenario, has this ever happened to you? And he said, yes. So I absolutely know this is realistic, and your preps will only do so much for you here. This is more about the situation and your thinking and getting out of a bad situation. And some of you are thinking it's an assault or something. No, no, this is just mechanical failure at the wrong time. How about this? You're on your way home, and your car stalls out. But you're in the center lane at rush hour on a four-lane highway. Four lanes on one side, that is. So an eight-lane highway system. Cars are rushing by honking at you for being such a jerk as to have had your car fail in their way. How do you safely get yourself and your vehicle off the road? Now, I want you to think about this. Cars are flying by you 60, 65 miles an hour. You've got at least two lanes to get across. Your car is dead for whatever reason. doesn't matter why, it's dead. And now I want you to think about this, guys, that say, well, if I have to, I'll get out and push, whatever. Now, it's your wife. Eh, okay, you think she's going to be okay. Now it's your 17-year-old daughter in that situation. This might be a good one not to just figure out what you would do, but what other members of your family should do and have a discussion about. So you give me your thoughts on today's prepper scenario in the uh, comments for episode 1448 today. And next week I'll come back with a new scenario and give you my thoughts on what I would do in this situation. In fact, what I did in this situation twice, and one time how the kindness of a stranger was actually quite beneficial and helped me out. So my first question today comes from Colin, and uh, actually, I'm sorry, Randy. And Randy says... How long does the Ebola virus stay contagious with a ho without a host? Let's say I have an advanced case and I sneeze on a doorknob. How long would it stay contagious on that surface? Would it be minutes, hours, or days? MSB member Randy, love your show. Thanks for all the great work you do. Um, I am tired of talking about Ebola, though the first two segments today are about Ebola. One uh, on this is serious, and the next one's going to give us some humor to help us deal with this a little bit better. Um, but... This was a valid question, and the reason this was valid is, on some levels, I'm not that concerned about the answer, but I didn't know the answer. And without knowing the answer, I thought, I'd like to know, how long does Ebola stay contagious? So the first thing I did is I ended up on a CDC website, and I read a very complex medical opinion about why it, it does what it does and how it works and all, but I got an answer. But it was like one of these answers that you're like, I don't want to listen to it. It's too long. So then I went and I found an answer from a doctor in an interview on CNN. When I do that, my only concern is, do the two things jive? And in this case, they do. So I now consider the CNN interview to be as valid as anything else for answering this question. The question was answered to um, this doctor. I'm looking for his name. Thomas Duncan, Dr. Duncan. How long can Ebola live on a surface? He says, in one study by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the Ebola virus lived on a surface in a perfectly controlled environment for up to six days. But the environment of, say, an airport, for example, or a school is not perfectly suited to support the virus. Studies done in Ebola treatments in Africa, uh, CDC spokeswoman Abigail Trumphy says, so the virus can live on surfaces for a few hours at most. Ebola is a vicious virus inside the body, but it dies very quickly on surfaces, she said. It's not a hardy virus. It's actually a very wimpy virus. Ebola can e is easily destroyed outside the body, experts say, with UV light, 
uh, heat and exposure to oxygen all deactivate the virus over time. So um, here is an example of where people are trying to figure out, well, how is this still dangerous? It must be the TV says I'm supposed to be scared, so what can I do to make sure that I'm scared? There's got to be a way that this thing's contagious, that it's going to get me. The question, though, is couched to make sure that it's covered all the bases that I've already covered with you to explain to you why you should stop worrying about Ebola. Good job, Randy. I'm still going to tear it apart on you, man. So it says, let's say I have, and this is the key words, and this proves Randy listens, an advanced case, and I sneeze on a doorknob. How long would it, how long would it stay contagious? Okay, so what Randy's pointed out very astutely, might I add, is that if I have Ebola and I sneeze a little bit of a sneeze and some of my sneeze gets somewhere and I, I've had Ebola for like a day or two, actually the odds that anybody's going to get infected with that are very, very low. It's not likely that I'm actually going to get infected with Ebola from that sneeze. If I'm in advanced stage Ebola where I'm, you know, dying and hemorrhaging and the, 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 the quantity of the virus in my body is really, really high, that phlegm, blood, sweat, all of my bodily fluids are highly contagious if they come into contact with you and get into an eye, a nose, mouth, any kind of small cut in my hand. One little droplet can, in fact, infect me. So if I'm in that stage and I sneeze on a doorknob and highly infectious Ebola goo goes on the doorknob, how likely is it that if somebody comes by and touches that uh, five hours later that they're going to get infected? Well, according to the CDC... Lives about six hours, lots of it there, probably pretty dangerous. However, if you have advanced stage Ebola, you're not sneezing on doorknobs. No, you're not. You're on your back dying. This is why this disease does not spread rapidly. And no amount of propaganda or media-based fear is going to do anything to ever change the reality of that. It's just not going to happen. I'm sorry. Actually, I'm not sorry. But I'm sorry for those of you that just want it to be. I'm not, I'm not really picking here on Randy. Okay, I'm not. Um, cause it's a, it, that's why I answered. It's a legitimate question. But there are so many people out there. Well, what if it mutates and goes airborne? Well, what if a meteor hits you in the top of the head? You're dead. But it's not likely to happen and you can't plan your life on it. The reality is that no virus like Ebola in medically recorded history has ever gone from this type of a transmission medium to airborne. It just hasn't happened. It's not like flu. It's not going to be like flu. It's never going to be like flu. It doesn't work that way. So when we look at something like H5N1 bird flu, and we're worried about will it make a transition? Will it jump to airborne transmission? It could, and the reason it could is it's a specific clave of the flu, And it's a disease that already has a history of transmitting itself airborne. Ebola is a totally different type of virus. It just doesn't work that way. And on that note, I got an email from Joe. And Joe says, with all the talk of Ebola, someone finally makes some fun sense about the threat Ebola represents. 31 things I'm scared of more than Ebola. And uh, they've got uh, a lady from like an old horror film, like, ah, on the front of it. And then they have uh, another <laughs> another really cool meme that's been going around. It's the from the Ricola uh, Ricola uh, commercials, you know, Ricola. And the guy's got the big 
uh, trumpet, and he's 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 sounding off with his trumpet, and it's going Ebola. That was that was pretty bad. Anyway, um, it, it's just a good once in a while to back up and get you know a little bit of humor and a sense of reality about what's going on. I think the number might even be high here with eight. Um, it's everywhere on the news. In well, where did this come from? This is on the in the powder room. In the powder room dot com. Uh, here we go. It's everywhere on the news, in the paper, Facebook nude feeds everywhere. The Twitter Ebola outbreak stockpile in the foods. Never leave the house. Ebola, you don't scare me. Out of 319 people in the United States, eight people are currently being treated for Ebola. Eight. That's less than one baseball team. A percentage so low that even my calculator laughed at me. It's so easy to get swept up in the fear-mongering that the media is throwing our way, but let's take a moment to use our brains and be realistic. Your chances of contracting Ebola are slimmer than me squeezing my ass into a pair of size 6 jeans. That's nearly impossible. I'm scared of a lot of things, but Ebola is not one of them. Things that scare me more than Ebola in order. Number one, head lice. Number two, 12-year-old girls. Number three, vasectomy failure. Number four, spiders. Number five, underestimating a fart. Number six, my credit card bill. That doesn't scare me. I don't have one anymore. Anyway, number seven, the kid's bathroom. Number eight, explaining. I'm not reading that one. You can read number eight for yourself if you want to. Um, explaining something to someone. Uh, number nine, peeing when sneezing, coughing, or laughing. <laughs> Math uh, is number ten. Number eleven, porta potties. Twelve, hearing mom, I think I'm going to barf. Thirteen, running out of candy crush lies because damn it, I know I can beat this level. Number fourteen, no wine. Number fifteen, no coffee. Number sixteen, no chocolate. Number seventeen, sitting on someone else's pee. Number eighteen, crickets. Number 19, being licked by your dog and his tongue slips into your mouth right after he licked himself. Number 20, chin hair. Uh, number 21, auto check changing forget it to F you as you send a text to your mother. Uh, number 22, when a four-year-old said he wiped his butt all by himself. Number 23, wearing a, a bathing suit. Number 24, sleepovers. Number 25, boogers hanging out of your nose during an important interview. Number 26, a room full of preschoolers. Number 27, sending a dirty text to the wrong person. Number 28, politicians. Number 29, hitting that friend request button while face-stalking someone. Uh, it means, I think she means Facebook-stalking someone. Uh, number 30, nude leggings. And... Uh, <laughs> When a kid climbs into your, number 31, when a kid climbs into your bed in the middle of the night and you feel something warm on your leg. You know, I don't know how practical that was, but I think it is practical from a standpoint of all of those things probably should concern you more than Ebola. Uh, when this whole thing started up with Ebola patients in Dallas, Texas, Jack, you're in Dallas, oh my God. I, I, I said to so many people by email, and I was so serious because at the time I was cooking chicken on the grill, and I said, I'm more concerned about the chicken on the grill right now than, than getting Ebola. I'm just, I mean, Could, is there a way that anybody out there listening to this could end up with Ebola at some point in their life? Yeah, sure there's a way. But there's also a way you could get run over by a car. And, and you're about a 100 times more likely, by the numbers, to die from an accident like slipping in the bathtub 
than to die from Ebola even if you went to Liberia for a couple days. So let's just all use some common sense and let's try to put Ebola on the shelf for a while, even though I know the media is not going to let it happen. So um, moving on to something totally different, I, I have told you guys that one of my biggest concerns for the economy going forward is the rise of automation, the rise of the machines, like in Terminator. But unlike Terminator, this isn't trying to kill John Connor. This is killing off many of the minimum wage to slightly above minimum wage jobs. And more and more, I think you'll start seeing it killing off jobs that are really you know, lower to middle, middle class wages. You can make a good living as a waiter or a bartender. You really can. And um, I don't think we're going to get rid of waiters and bartenders. But we may very soon need a lot less of them. Right now, uh, we're seeing this more and more prevalent in the fast food industry. And, of course, the media. The media has gone out of their way to um, really drive home. It's the poor fast food worker, and they need a union, and there was picketing and strikes and demonstrations and all. It was all fake. It was all completely fake. And I've told you the reason it's fake is that everybody in the power struggle, everybody on both sides of the dichotomy, knows that in the next few years we're going to have more and more and more um, jobs lost to automation. And both sides want somebody to blame because they don't want you to blame them. And they also don't want you to do something else. They don't want you to accept that it's inevitable. They want... See, it's not good enough that you don't blame them. They want you to blame their enemy. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. So the Democrats want to make sure that they have a message ready to go. As the reality of this hits home, that it's the Republicans' fault. It's evil rich people's fault. And the Republicans want a story. It's all those dumb fast food workers. They couldn't leave well enough alone, just like uh, the king going and attack the Ottoman Turks when they weren't ready to do it. Uh, and they poked the beast too much, and now you know they've been replaced because they were greedy and wanted fifteen dollars an hour to you know to do what really should be a transitional job when you're a young person moving up, not something you make a career out of. I mean, you don't make a career out of flipping whoppers. You just don't. And the reality is, it's it's nobody's fault. It's business. If I can replace pain in the ass employees with with technology that does a better job makes my customer happier, costs me less money, I don't have to pay benefits for, doesn't call in for sick work, I'm going to do it. And I'd have to be stupid not to. Well, Keith sends me an email. Keith says, just saw a commercial for Chili's promoting that they were they have credit card machines at the table so you can pay and leave as you want. Workforce reduction, anyone. Uh, yeah, Chili's is a restaurant we go to once in a while because it's like the only decent restaurant really close to our house. Um, if we want to go to a nice place, we have to go to down to Fort Worth or all the way around the, the Metroplex to Benbrook or something like that. There's just not a lot here. So I, while I don't think Chili's is a bastion of paleo-nutritional health or good, healthy, local, you know, sourced food, it's not terrible. You know, when you're just like, yeah, I don't feel like cooking today. Let's go out and grab a bite and a margarita. So we, we've gone to the Chili's here a couple times and I've seen these machines. And right now... They're little bitty portable stands. They sit on your table, and they can move them from table to table if they want to. And you can browse the menu and learn information about what's going on. You can play video games on it, and you but you can't order your food on it just yet. Okay, 
What you what you can do though is your waiter comes, you order your meal, you order your first round of drinks. If you pick and and play with it at that point, it'll say order another round of drinks. So and you could say I want one of each or I want just one or whatever. So you could order more drinks without waiting for your server to get done with a smoke break outside and come back and take your order, which is kind of convenient if you'd like another round of drinks and you'd like to like have two drinks and and dinner and you don't want to get your second drink like when your dinner's done. You actually kind of want to enjoy it with dinner and then sit and talk for a while. So it does make your user experience better right now. But the the truth of the matter is These folks putting these machines on the table right now are the servers. Most of them don't know they're training their replacements right now. That's what they're actually doing. They're training their replacements. What do you mean? They're training the machine? No, the machine's not the replacement. You, the consumer, are the replacement. So instead of just putting this thing on your table and expecting you to figure out how to order all your own food and stuff like that, though it really isn't that hard and you probably could, What they've done is they've left the server in place and they've had the machine do things like ask you if you want to contribute to St. Jude's, let you reorder your drinks, and yes, pay your check, even leave a tip for your server, who by the way is doing less and less now, and walk out the door. What this does for the consumer right now is this. Number one, yeah, you can order a second round of drinks. Two, I think the last time I was there, you can add dessert to your order, so you don't have to wait. I don't usually order that, but you could do that if you wanted to. When you order your dessert, you can even select to go. So if we do get dessert, we usually take it to go. So that can all be done, and it lets you pay the bill. Is it just me, or is one of the most annoying things that can ever happen to you when you're at a restaurant is I'm done with my meal, I would just like to leave. Where is my server? Where is my check? Your tip, which was a good 25% tip, is now ebbing 24, 23, 22, 21. Because I want to leave now, and I can't leave. So that little kiosk sitting there, pull it up, swipe my credit card, pay my bill, walk out the door. I've got my convenience back. But what is what has Chili just done? Chili's has just done something I've been trying to teach you guys when I talk about business to do for a long time. Train your customers to do business with you. This is exactly what's going on now. The customer is being slowly conditioned to use the electronic device. Within a year, when you want that, that device right now could just be a switch flip. I guarantee you. Walk in, sit down. Choose your own table. There could be a little thing at the front, tables that are currently available. No tables are available. Get on a waiting list. I don't even need a host anymore. Okay? Beep. And a little pager pops out. I'll wait for my table. Pager goes off. I go to my table. Sit down. Pull it up. I'd like this. Honey, what would you like? Bam, bam, bam. All I need is a food runner to bring my food out. That's coming. That's a year to year and a half away at restaurants at the level of Chili's and Applebee's and things like that. There'll still be some waiters for people that aren't comfortable with it. Um, you'll have to request a, wa a waiter within two years at most of these restaurants. Would you like automated service or a waiter today, sir? Right? And it'll probably be a touchpad, right? Because there's people that just won't do this. But they're training people to do this. And the reason they're doing it, and the reason it will work, is it is more convenient. And what I can do now is rebalance my staff. 
I have food runners to bring food out. I have like one or two servers to take care of the people that can't work the machine or don't want a machine. And I can put a little more staff action back in the kitchen to be reactionary and respond to all the orders. Maybe I can put another person behind the bar, right? So that way I can rebalance my staff, but I am going to cut headcount. And these little machines can't cost a thousand bucks. And it's coming. And Chili's is just another example of the places that it's coming to. It's not just McDonald's. And this should tell you right away, it's not about minimum wage. A waiter at Chili's makes quite a bit more than minimum wage. If they're any good at what they do. Yes, I know their hourly rate's like $2.30 an hour or something like that. But with tips, you know, it's not a bad paying job especially in a decent-sized city or town. Um, it's, it's In some cases, it's pretty competitive to get jobs at, especially the chain restaurants or a little bit higher up. Uh, I can tell you that there's a restaurant down in Fort Worth that I know waiters are making three to $500 a night at. Now, that kind of uh, restaurant will be the very last place, very last place, to switch over to automation because people going to that type of a restaurant want really high-end service. But here's a question for you. Where are those restaurants going to get their upcoming talent from if no one has kind of the minor leagues to play in before they play in the major leagues? There's a whole ball of wax going on here, and it's interesting to look at. And I'm telling you, you need to be prepared for instability in the economy. And it's going to get harder and harder for young workers to have that first job to get the experience under their belt because more and more of those jobs are just disappearing. So, um, you know, we are kind of on a Jack was right day today. And again, one of these things I don't want to be right about. This one I actually am a little bit okay with and I'm a little bit happy about. The other thing that I talked about that would begin to happen is more and more states did more and more stupid things that more and more people would say, you know what, I'm walking to freedom. And... What you're starting to see is states now trying to implement their own versions of capital controls to stop the bleeding or to force things their way within their state. Uh, recently, Mario Como, the governor of New York, was bellyaching to the federal government going, federal government, please come in and help us. We have people leaving New York in droves because of incentives that other states are you know, giving them to pay lower taxes or whatever, and that the federal government should prevent this. For a governor of a state to be calling on the federal government to actually interfere with states' rights tells you something. There's nobody that should be more for the rights of an individual state than the governor of that state. That's his rights to govern his state. Um, but when you're losing, all of a sudden you want somebody to come in and help you. Uh, politics makes strange bedfellows. Well, right now... We have a state doing this on their own. It's Michigan. Now, if there's a state that's in more economic trouble than Michigan, weighed down by the boat anchor that is Detroit, I really don't know what it is. There are states doing things that are dumber, that are absolutely dumber than Michigan, like Illinois, okay, like New York, like California. But economically... Michigan has been punched below the belt more than anybody else, especially with the loss of the auto industry. So you'd think the last thing that Michigan would want to do is discourage any sort of automotive industry activity in their state, but yet they do. Listen to this. Michigan wants to outlaw Tesla. 
Now, this is on the Daily Dot. I have to, before I begin, tell you that this is, again, an example of a headline using yellow journalism and going out of context. Michigan doesn't want to outlaw Tesla. It's just Tesla is who would be affected if they choose not to do business Michigan's way. The, the headline would make you think, well, I can't drive a Tesla in Michigan. That's not... It's not, and I really wish you people out there that are blogging and pretending to be journalists would learn a little bit about journalism and try to be a little less jazzy with your headlines and a little more accurate. So here's the true story. The birthplace of the modern car industry may soon outlaw the car of the future. Again, yellow journalism. It's not, God, why? Why do you people have to be like this? You know how many people are going to see this on, on Facebook and go, Michigan's outlawing electric cars. Ugh. Without reading the article, let me read the article for you. Michigan legislature has voted in favor of a bill that includes an amendment meant to prohibit the sale of Tesla, physical, te Tesla vehicles in the state, reports Bloomberg, as long as Tesla refuses to sell its car through franchise dealerships. The issue stems from Tesla Motors' insistence that it sell vehicles directly to the customer rather than through traditional dealerships. The amendment pushed forward by the Michigan Automobile Dealers Association, imagine that, would make it illegal to sell vehicles directly to a retail customer other than through franchise dealers. You can read the rest of the article if you want to. Do I really need to read more for you to understand what it is? You have all these auto dealers in Michigan worried about Tesla, who's what, 2% of the total car market, if that? Because Tesla has a model that eliminates them. You don't buy your Tesla from a Tesla dealer, you buy your Tesla car from Tesla. Let me tell you a couple reasons this is going on. Number one, if the, if the model works for Tesla, who has all the cards in the deck right now stacked against them, then just maybe Ford will go, huh, maybe we need to do this too. Maybe we don't need dealerships and slick-talking car commercials and dealer special financing and all that. Maybe we could open a Ford store like Apple does with a Mac store, you know, an Apple store. Maybe we would just go to a direct model. Maybe there would be a place you can get your car serviced and all, but maybe... Now, the reality is the big automakers are not likely to do this anytime very soon. They have an incredible asset in their dealerships throughout the United States, but it starts to open the Pandora's box of this. And and you're also entering an age where more and more people are going to come out with more and more new automobiles. And it's going to be the case that maybe Ford wouldn't say we're going to get rid of Ford dealerships, but Ford might create a new brand and use that brand in a direct model. And all these dealers are afraid that they're going to lose their little honey hole that they have. Now, instead of saying we're valuable and this is why we're valuable and why we should remain around and proving it by delivering it, they want the government on their behalf to ban somebody from selling any other way but their own. Now, you might think I would be really upset about this. I'm not. Um, what do I think should be done about this? I don't know. I don't care. I don't live in Michigan. It's not my problem. The bill is now heading to Governor Rick Snyder. He has until August 21st, uh, October 21st to sign it into law or to veto it. It's his choice. Uh, this is Michigan's problem. I'm totally cool with this. I think this is exactly the way our republic is supposed to work. Michigan can do anything it wants. Now, if all of a sudden Tesla says, you know what, we're just not going to deal with Michigan at all, 
That's Michigan's problem, isn't it? And you might have people then in Michigan going, really? This is how you're helping us? And saying maybe this is yet one more reason to leave Michigan. This is how the states, lowercase s, are supposed to work within the republic of the state, uppercase s. These are all to be bastions of economic liberty. And if Oregon wants a higher minimum wage, it's up to Oregon. And the citizens of Oregon get to decide whether it really works or not. But what you see is these states trying to say to the federal government, we don't want a, a jump ball. We don't want an open playing field. What we want is we want you to level the playing field for all the states. If we're going to do that, we might as well just get rid of all the states and just have America. Not the United States of America, just America. That's the entire point. That's the reason for a republic, so that the member states are able to exercise their individual sovereignty under local governance with greater control by the people. And if one does something really stupid and one does something really smart, the free movement of the federal citizen equalizes things over time as we find the best solution. Now, that's very hard for that to work anymore. But it is still working, and that's why you see things like this going on. You see things like Governor Cuomo crying and bitching like a little baby to the federal government. It's not fair that Texas is taking our business away from us. And isn't it interesting that the same time that he's doing that, New York is offering the same deal. Yep. In New York, you can go start a new business or move your business to New York if you meet certain criteria, and you can pay no corporate income tax for 10 years. Here's the catch. You have to meet their criteria, and you have to go put your business in one of their economic freedom zones. So place basically a place you'd probably rather not locate your business. They're trying to incentivize people to go there. But you have a state like Texas going, you can just come here, go anywhere you want, from Texarkana to El Paso to Amarillo to Corpus Christi and anything in between, set up your business however you want to and never pay any corporate income tax. We just don't do that. And that's just a better deal. And see, Como doesn't like that. And there's other governors right now doing the same thing. And it's interesting the states that are asking the federal government to step in and prevent this sniping of jobs and businesses. There's states like California. Illinois, Michigan, Connecticut. A lot of those are on the walking to freedom naughty list, are they not? It's kind of interesting. Just saying. Let's take another one. Here's a type of question I've answered a lot of times, but I'll answer it again because if they keep coming, that means people have the concern. It says, hi, Jack. I'm new to the precious metals game. What kinds of questions should I be asking or concerns should I have when purchasing gold or silver? Details. I'm from Ontario, Canada. I can't buy from JM Bullion because they don't ship to Canada yet. So looking elsewhere uh, for the time being, and it seems there are a lot of companies selling. Just want to make sure I don't get screwed and I'm buying a good product uh, for its intended and potential purpose. Um, there is so much concern in the precious metals industry, and there really shouldn't be. It just shouldn't be. Uh, it's like being concerned which gas station you buy your gas from, you're not going to get real gasoline. Is there counterfeiting in the precious metals world? Yeah, it's really easy to spot, really easy to recognize. And if you're dealing with a 100-ounce silver bar... Yeah, somebody could have cored it out, put some lead in the center of it or something, and financially this makes sense. It's, it's not very economically viable to make a good quality counterfeit silver one ounce coin or bar. 
It just isn't. There are counterfeit coins and silver bars coming in out of China. They can make them. No dealer that's a reputable deal. I mean, if you're buying from Mike the Garage Guy who has a buy and sell silver sign in his window, he might be an idiot not know any better. But you're not going to go to even a decent pawn shop and buy a silver eagle or, in your case, maybe a silver maple leaf that's fake. It's not going to happen. So the only thing you really need to know is, is the source, has, have they been around a while? Because if you're screwing people in this industry, you're done. You're not going to do it for very long. And number two, is the price reasonable and fair? Which you can look at the spot price and add a couple bucks to the ounce is about what you're looking at on an average basis. Is it a market rate for the area? The easiest thing to do if you're concerned with pricing is call four or five shops that sell silver or gold in your area and say right now on generic silver rounds, what are you charging? On generic gold uh, coins, if you have them, what are you charging? On uh, uh, silver eagles, silver maple leaves, you know, gold buffaloes, whatever, what are you charging? And write down the price. Get pricing for four or five places. And if they're all kind of close, and they probably will be, then any of them are fine. If one's really, really high, it tells you something's not right there. That's it. As far as online, Monex, Atmex, you know, I, I, I talk about them when I talk about JM. Because, well, JM has better pricing and better service. So why not buy from JM? But I think they both ship to Canada. So if you're in Canada, I mean, these, these are huge companies. They've been around forever. They're not going to screw you. There is no commodity easier to get pricing from 10 places for in five minutes than gold and silver. I, I don't understand, honestly, how much apprehension there is in buying a roll of silver junk 1964 or prior silver junk dimes or buying a tube of 21-ounce silver eagles or maple leaves. It's one of the, the most freely exchanged open market commodities in, in the world today. So the, the real answer is, as long as you're not buying from Mike's gas station, you can't go wrong. You really can't. And be a little bit intelligent. Check the price. You can do this, too. Let's say you want to buy from a local store. Go to Monix, go to Atmex, go to Jambolion. Price the item. Most of the freely exchanged items are on one, two, or all three of those sites. Get a price. Go down to your local coin shop. If he's charging two bucks a coin more, say, hey, I can get this online for this price. He's going to do one of three things. He's going to tell you, I don't care. I'm not them. I don't do their volume. I give you personal service. You don't have to pay shipping. If you want that for that price, go there and buy it from them. He's going to say, you know what? Okay, I have some stuff in stock that I can match pricing with. It may not be the stuff you want, but if you just want to buy silver or gold for the cheapest price possible, if you'll take some things with some blemishes and stuff like that, you're not in it for numismatics, I can match the price. Or he's going to say, you know what I can do? Um, I'm two bucks over them a coin. You have to pay them shipping. I will come down a dollar. I can come down a dollar a coin if you're buying at least uh, 20 ounces. He's either going to meet you in the middle, match the price, Or tell you to pound sand. And in some cases, he's going to tell you to pound sand. Not because he's ripping you off, because if you look at where you're at, you'll see a roof over the head, you'll see security in place. He's got to pay his bills. And a lot of your small dealerships can't really pay or can't really sell at the price the big companies can. 
But again, you're not paying shipping. But what are you usually paying? Sales tax. It kind of washes out. But let me, let me really drive this home for you. We buy silver and gold as an assurance plan, not an insurance, assurance plan for our wealth. We try to put 5% to 10% of our net wealth into silver and gold. That's what I teach anyway. And we do that so if there's any type of catastrophic economic failure, that we have this assurance plan in place to assure us that our wealth is preserved. If you have 10% of your wealth in silver and gold and 90% in cash and cash equivalent assets, which is probably not the right way to go either, but if your cash becomes close to worthless or gets cut three, four times in, uh, in half, the silver is going to escalate at such a level, it's going to offset that. It's not going to make you rich. It's going to offset it. That's why we do it. So, since that's what we're doing, I know nobody likes to pay more than they have to. But if you buy 10 silver rounds from a guy down the street who you shake hands with and know on a personal basis, or you buy it online and save a buck a coin, it's 10 freaking dollars. At the time, you need that metal. You're not going to give one load of crap about that $10, are you? That $10 is going to be so insignificant. And by the way, that coin could go up or down a dollar two hours after you buy it. Are you going to sit around and sweat it? There is nothing that we nitpick about the price more than gold and silver. Most of us, not all of us, but most of us, if we're driving down the street and we see a gas station, and on one side of the street, the side we're on, it's really convenient to get in and out and there's no line, and the gas is a nickel more a gallon than the one across the street. But the one across the street, we got to get across three lanes of traffic. There's a bunch of people in the way. There's a line. What are we going to do? Right? We're going to go pay a nickel more a gallon. Most of us, anyway. Some of you won't. Okay, if we get 20 gallons of gas, it's a dollar. You're not going to go home, toss and turn and lose sleep that you paid a dollar more. If you did that 20 times a year, it's 20 bucks. If I have 20 bucks in my pocket, I'm not just going to throw it on the ground, but I'm not going to lose a lot of sleep over it. If I pay an extra 10 or 20 bucks a year, or even an extra 100 bucks a year on coins and bars and things that I'm buying, you know, there's a point at which you, when you're buying a large volume, you really need to think about it. But I find actually the people that are most concerned over like, well, that coin's 75 cents higher than I think it should be are buying two. When they do that, I want to pull out $2 bills, hand them to them, and say, go buy your coins and leave me alone. So I'm not picking on the, the person asking the question, Kevin, here. I'm just saying that this is this, this mental roadblock that we get into with silver and gold, like it's something entirely different than anything else, where if you went out to buy anything else in your daily life, if you can get it for a buck less without losing any sleep, you're going to do it. But if you got to pay an extra buck for it, you're not going to get all in a wad about it. So, especially when you start getting into like a quarter and 50 cents. I've had people going, I think that your sponsor is ripping me off because right now I can buy American Eagles for a quarter less a coin over at XYZ.com. And my response is, how many are you going to buy? Well, four. Okay. Give me your PayPal address. I'll send you a dollar. Leave me alone. Right? I mean, it is ridiculous the level of fear that we have with metals with either being ripped off or getting counterfeit metal. And again, unless you're buying large bars, especially with silver, it's uneconomical to try to counterfeit anything, especially from any type of a dealer. So good question. Um, and if I was ranting a little bit, I apologize. But I really want to make this point. 
the, the amount of time some people stress over buying 10 ounces of silver this year, okay, to save a couple bucks, say $2.50, the time was worth more than the $2.50. You're just better off buying it. Now, if silver's trading at $14 an ounce, let's say, it goes down to that low, and the average person's selling a silver eagle at $15.50, let's say, and you do notice that somebody's selling at like $18 a coin, Uh, especially online, it doesn't mean necessarily they're ripping you off. It may be that their automated system didn't update or whatever, but don't buy from them. Don't pay, overpay ridiculously, but don't sit around sweating nickels and dimes on your way to dollars. It's just not worth it, not in silver and not really in any walk of life. And, and the way things are coming lately, I mean, maybe we, instead of the dun-dun-dun, Jack was wrong, we do need a Jack was right sound effect. I don't know what we would use. Um But here's another one. I've been talking about mileage taxes since at least 2009. I know I've got some of you guys out there that kind of play historian for me. And if you can find uh, or know of the earliest time I mentioned a mileage tax, I'd actually like to know about it because I'd like to play that segment on the air for people, especially new listeners. But I've been saying that the, the whole dadgone country is going to go to a mileage tax system for a variety of reasons. Number one, the way they're going to do it is by tracking your vehicle. This will mean they know everywhere you are, how fast you're going, how, when you got there, when you left, and that's just a lot of information that, dadgone it, if the government can have that information on its citizens, why wouldn't it? Right? It's not information we want them to have, but that's too tasty for them to pass up. If they can come up with any excuse or any reason to be able to track every citizen every time they get in a vehicle, well, they're going to do it. Why wouldn't they? They're already storing your grandmother's text messages at the NSA data center in Salt Lake City. Don't you think they'd like to know when you went to go pick up a pizza? Oh, and that information will be so valuable. You can sell it to companies who want to know what to sell you or health insurance companies that don't want to cover you anymore because of your bad health practices. Don't think all of this isn't coming. But what comes first is the mileage tax and a means by which to track it. And this means will be through RFID chips, and sensors placed throughout the, the highway and road system throughout the country. And what does this eventually lead to? Long term, it leads to vehicles that drive themselves. I'll leave that out today, but trust me, that's where it goes. But this one comes in from Kevin. Kevin says, chalk up another one for the Jack called this one column. California typically leads the way with regard to states and transportation systems, and, and they generally do do that. This is on betterroads.com, and it's an article entitled California to Test Feasibility of dun, 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 Mileage Tax. California Governor Jerry Brown has signed legislation into law that will allow the state to implement a pilot program to test whether charging road usage fee or mileage-based tax could effectively replace fuel taxes as the primary means to fund highways and road projects. The legislation calls for the pilot program to begin no later than January 1st, 2017. With Brown's signature, California became the third West Coast state to implement testing of a vehicle mileage tax's ability to replace fuel taxes. Let's stop. There's two very important things here. Number one, they are not, they are not, they are not, they will never stop taxing gas ever, 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 never infinity until nobody uses it anymore, which is no time soon. They will never replace the gas tax with a mileage tax. They will add a mileage tax to the gas tax. They may even pacify you by 
reduction of the gas tax by like a penny or some crap. And they might even say it's a penny a mile to start out or something stupid like that to make you feel good with it. But once they have taxes in place, raising them is easy. And they never see. So number one, liar, liar, pants on fire. They will never, 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 infinity, stop taxing gasoline ever, ever, never. Okay? You got that. Number two, it is the third West Coast state. Tim, do you know how many West Coast states we have? I guess four. I guess, oh, but do you, when you say the West Coast, do you think of Alaska? Is Alaska anything like California, Oregon, or Washington? And there's an Alaskan right now ready to punch you in the face if you say yes. I guarantee, there's a lot. If you're going to compare Alaska to California, I bet there's a whole line of really tough guys in Alaska that, that are proud to be Alaskans, just getting in line and waiting to take turns punching you in the head. When we say the West Coast, we mean those three states. So this should actually say has become the final West Coast state to implement this program. So all the lunacy starts either in the New York, Northeast, the West Coast, or Chicago. Like, I mean, all the lunacy comes from there. Washington, D.C., up through New England, Chicago, and the left coast. So this particular brand of lunacy is being brought to you by left coast Indians. And so they've all done it now. And those three states, if you add up their population, it is a huge portion of the United States population. Once that's in place, they will begin to fall like dominoes. And even states that are bastions of freedom, like Texas, will soon realize this just makes sense. And you'll be told we have to do it everywhere. And the federal government will say, we really like this idea. We'll put federal funds up to any state that wants to do this, and it will be everywhere soon. Here is more proof as I read the rest of the article. State governments and the U.S. government, that's the federal government guys, have seen road funding dry up in recent years as the fuel tax has become more and more ineffective at bringing in enough money to fund highways. As vehicles have become more fuel efficient and Americans drive less. And as fuel ta rates have failed to keep up, with, fuel tax rates have failed to keep up with inflation. States have had to start looking elsewhere for money to fund transportation and, and infrastructure. Uh, more liar, liar. Okay, let me read this to you. <laughs> As vehicles have become more fuel efficient and Americans drive less. If we take the year that we use the most gasoline that we've ever used ever, and we take our current usage in gasoline, yes, fuel by the gallon is down 8%. From the booming economy, where everybody was driving a big giant SUV everywhere, to the crumbling economy, where everybody has a hybrid, fuel usage has dropped by 8%. You can say what you want about inflation. It hasn't been that bad over the last 10 years. It really hasn't. I know if you're a single mom, you're yelling at me right now about the cost of macaroni and cheese, and you're right about that. But when it comes down to it, for government spending... Inflation hasn't been that bad. If we put in another 2% for inflation, we're talking about a 10% reduction in tax revenues from uh, motor fuel usage. Well, here's the other thing. The states have not failed to raise fuel taxes. The states have raised it, and local governments have raised it whenever the hell they felt like. It's the federal government that knows this is a third rail. But if the federal government really wanted to fix this problem, 
they could raise the federal gas tax rate by 10% and immediately be back to par. Do you know what that would be? Two cents a gallon. Two cents a gallon. And they could solve this problem. The fact that they don't want to do it is not about political will. It really isn't. Even the politicians that are scared of losing their jobs know that all the all the hugaboo and all the things that are done about you know tax this and tax that, if they raised the gas tax by three cents, that everybody would basically get over it pretty fast. That most people would understand it just doesn't really matter that much. And very few seats in office would change over it. And if it was really the problem, they would do it. But they have bigger problems. Number one, they have this amazing opportunity to screw us with higher taxes. Because if you think you're going to save money with a mileage tax, you're just, well, you know that stuff they made legal in Colorado recently? Yeah, you're smoking some really good stuff. Because uh, it's not going to happen. Governments never implement new tax policies to save taxpayers money. That's not how it works. They implement new tax policies to get more money for themselves. Oh, so we, we know that that's really kind of a load there. The next problem they have is with declining fuel revenues. But it's not declining fuel revenues now. It's declining fuel revenues into the future. This is not going to stop. So it all plays in together. So automation. So if I have less people working these low-end jobs, I have less people driving to them. Got it? So that's less fuel usage as well. And there are more and more fuel-efficient vehicles coming out, and there will be more and more electric options for vehicles, and there will be more and more innovation there. So government has made a living on selling gas, right? The government makes more money selling gas than the gas station. The government makes more money selling gas than the oil company. The government makes more money selling gas than the refinery. Now, it doesn't make more money than all of the private industry in the chain, the multi-step chain. But in the end, if you look at the, the, the company that pumps the oil out of the ground, the, sec the business unit that refines the oil, the wholesale distributor that sells to the gas station, or the gas station that sells to the public, in each of those transactions, there's less profit than the government makes for doing nothing. Okay? So they've had this scam in place for about 100 years now, and they've used it to fund all types of things, not just building roads and bridges, which is what we're told. We have to have roads. The gas tax is a good thing. They pilfer these funds. And the federal government does to a degree, but the states pilfer these funds like crazy. They put a half-cent gas tax in to build a football stadium or something like that. It happens all the time. Or they have this motor vehicle for like local maintenance and they need some money and, well, it's there. And we'll just won't fix a couple potholes this year and we'll pilfer it. So all the governments, from the county to the local to the state to the federal, have been making more money selling fuel by not doing anything for 100 years than the people actually selling the fuel. And their slush fund is drying up. Their slush fund's drying up. It's becoming more and more difficult, and people are actually changing their behavior based on the cost of fuel. So as fuel gets more and more expensive, and every time they charge more in their tax on it, that helps it get more expensive, people cut a little bit more here and there. This is the danger of things like sin taxes. So, you know, when people hear, well, they're just going to increase the tax on cigarettes by 200%, and that'll raise money to, you know, give flowers to orphans or some crap like that. And they're like, oh, I don't care, I don't smoke. You know, and I don't want, I don't like being around people that smoke. They stink. Let them get e-cigarettes. Guess what they do? They get e-cigarettes. They realize that number one, you don't want to be around them because they smell bad. And if you smoke, you stink. Get an e-cigarette. I don't think it's good for you, but 
It's not as bad. I'll put it to you that way. And you, you're not off the smell. You're stinking, right? But they they smoke less, and they. But what happens in the interim? Government builds up this tax slush fund, and they say, well, what we really want is people to smoke less. No, they don't. We want people to drive less and take the carpool lane. No, they don't. That's like Exxon saying we want you to burn less oil, right? That's like Apple saying we want you to buy less iPhones. No, they don't. That's what they. That's their business is taxing your money when you spend it, taxing your money when you earn it, taxing your money money when you invest it, taxing your money when you hold it, and taxing your money when you convert it and hold it as property. They want more of everything because that's where their money comes from. So. When you see these tax schemes that are supposed to be beneficial to everybody and provide money for education and things like that, the, the, the problem is they're always couched with, we'd like to change behavior to be healthier, better for the environment, better for the nation. But when the behavior changes, all the money that they were collecting goes away. They got to go somewhere else to get it. So when people said to me, Jack, how did you know? How did you know six years ago? that we were going to see mileage taxes coming out like they are now, more and more. And it, like no one now questions. Everybody's like, well, they're going to do it. It's just a matter of how long it's going to take them and how they're going to do it. How did you know? Well, because that's what they always do. When they, when they ride a horse to the point where that horse is ready to fall over and die and become dog food, they have to get a new horse. So they've, they've run out this scam as long as they can. And you know I said the federal government could raise the gas tax two cents without heads rolling? Maybe not. Maybe not. It's one place that people, everybody, everybody buys fuel. And everybody feels that. And, and the middle class, when gas goes up 20 cents a gallon in a, a spike, just 20 cents, they get upset about it and they feel it. And if the government's contributed anything to that, it makes them angry. Now, of course, Americans can only be angry at one thing at a time as well. So, um, I don't know. But I, I'm telling you right now, the reason I knew this was coming is simply because They've, they've done this for so long, and they've extracted so much, and it is ebbing. And 10% doesn't sound like a lot, but when you're the government, 10% is a lot because you're taxing everybody. There's 319 million people in this country. There's probably over 100 million of us that drive cars and buy gasoline. When you're taxing 100 million people on something and they all do it 10% less, it hits home. You can only print so much money before people get upset. So how do you balance it all out? You come up with a new scheme. But we don't ever let a crisis go to waste. So the new scheme is not just about taxing you. It's about tracking you. And they're saying things like, well, we could have the, the you know, like, we're not sure how to do this yet. We can't figure it out. It's about feasibility. And they're not, guys, every one of you that drives a car, has stickers and plates and things that go on it. And they're not even going to do that. You're going to get to where you want to drive your car? Okay, you have to have a little box of some kind, about the size of half a cell phone. Just like we have toll tags now in Texas, and many other states have Easy Pass, and uh, I think Florida has like Sun Pass or something like that. We'll have a, 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 like a nationally recognized one that has reciprocity with all states. It'll have an RFID chip, in it, and you have to have it in your car. And if you don't have it, you can't drive your car. Well, I'm not getting one. They're not tracking me. Fine. You get in your car. You drive down the road. All the sensors will go off and tell the police that you don't have one, which means you're breaking the law through tax evasion, which is a state and federal crime now. And they'll pull you over and bust you for just, the same as they would bust you for driving without a license plate or without a registration 
who can't make me. They can and they will. This is coming. We're not going to prevent this. You need to start thinking about how you deal with this and what it means to your life. I wouldn't lose a lot of sleep over it because this is still, this is a decades-long implementation that we're about three years into now. You're going to get seven years out before this is really coming up everywhere. But let me make a little prediction for you. This is not one of my you-can-take-it-to-the-bank predictions. But this is my feeling. Somewhere in all this, they will make two cases, three cases to you about why this is good. Something, something, illegal immigration. Okay? <laughs> something, something, think of the children. And something, something, terrorism. Right? Without getting too far into it today. Those will be the three cases made to you. We found lost children because of this. And that's so important. If it saves even one life, um, there'll be something to do with undocumented workers and people getting into the country, and that'll lead to something, something, terrorism. It won't really be about illegal immigration, but you pepper a little bit of that in there to win over the right. Right? And then something, something, terrorism, which wins everybody over because God help us all. The terrorists are out to get us. ISIS is on the border. Uh, they're, they're waiting to come across and get you right now. And, uh, I don't know, make you marry a 14 year old. I, I mean, it's just, ugh, but it's what will be used to sell it. And by the time it's going into full implementation, the average American will think it's a good thing. They will sell this to you with a silver tongue. They probably will start cutting gas pump prices over and over. And, you know, if you're driving a really fuel-efficient vehicle, um, you won't care as much. But if you're driving one of the older cars that's getting 18, 20 miles a gallon, it'll feel good at first. And the, the, the tax will be really, really low. It might be like a penny every 10 miles. But let me tell you where it leads. It leads to this. We have a lot of congestion on the road. If you drive off peak hours, we'll charge you less. It leads to, let's just paint a different color line on the, the, the far left lane, the high speed lane. Let's call it an express lane. No new construction, we'll just change the color of line that borders it. And if you cross that border of the line, you don't have to be HOV or whatever, you just pay more. If you drive over a certain amount of speed, we're not going to give you a ticket, we're just going to charge you an excess uh, velocity tax. right? So let's say the tax was... Um, I don't know, let's say per hundred miles, it was a dollar. All right? I don't know what it's going to be. Right? But let's just say it was a dollar per hundred miles. But let's say you've driven a hundred miles in excess of the speed limit on the roads which you were on, it's two dollars. And if it goes over a certain amount, it's three dollars. If it goes over a certain amount, sooner or later, it'll be new cars. Your car will shut off for going too fast. And that will save lives. And reduce insurance rates, which for some reason continue to go up. But this is where this is going. This is exactly where this is going. And it's going to go this way too. Well, Mr. Smith, you seem to spend an awful lot of time stopping at the local liquor store. Maybe we need to target you for potential DUI. Huh? Or, boy, this guy stops at the pizza place every day. You don't think that information is going to be shared with the insurance company and medical practices sooner or later? I know you think I'm going into the world of conspiracy theory. I'm not. This is a logical progression. As data is collected, there is a desire to use it and disseminate it amongst multiple agencies. If you look at what really changed in America 
other than invasion of individual liberty and privacy after 9-11. It was government agencies more freely exchanging information, and they told you that was a good thing. Well, see, the way that most government agencies make a case to you for the collection of data in the first place is we need this data to perform Mission X. So we say, okay, we'll tolerate that invasion for the purpose of Mission X. And another organization says, well, we need this, organ this data for the, for the implementation of Mission Y. And you say, okay, well, we'll tolerate that for Mission Y. Never with the expectation that X and Y will be combined together and sh shared with Agency 3, right? So Agency 1 has X, Agency 2 Y, and Agency 3 gets X and Y. That was never the deal that was made, but it's always the deal that ends up being made, and they'll do whatever they have to to justify it to you so you don't snap out and actually throw all the bums out of office like we should, which is never going to happen. I love that one. I love that one. What we need to do is vote everybody out. Okay, whatever. It's not happening. You know, At this point, your vote, you might as well make a wish, write it on a piece of paper, make a paper airplane on it, get up on a building and send it forth as a prayer. It's about as effective as it's going to be to prevent things like this from occurring. It's all coming. It's all coming soon. And again, I have no pleasure in being right about it. All right, so next up, this one comes in from Chris. And Chris says, this article basically warns that anyone eating paleo is extreme. I guess I'm a little extreme. Uh, and gives a new disorder name, Orthox Area. And we should seek professional help. And the title of the article is, uh, Health Officials Say Clean Eating Can Become an Obsessive Disorder. Rather than read this to you, I actually want to play for you right now the audio of the news report on this. So if you are concerned with not just paleo eating, but clean eating, you can become obsessive and have an obsessive disorder. And again, your disorder is called or orthox area or some other crap they've made up. Here you go. Trend of clean eating is becoming more frequent these days, but health experts say there's a time when healthy eating can go too far. Yeah, those who become obsessive about healthy eating can suffer from a disorder called orthorexia. orthorexia. Health officials say it happens when those trying to live a healthy lifestyle take it to the extreme and cut out essential food groups. East Texas News' Francesca Washington explains why too much of a good thing can have negative outcomes. Health officials say clean eating has become a popular trend, and a disorder called orthorexia is also becoming more frequent. They get fixated on maybe one certain type of eating, that they actually start neglecting the um, other types of foods that can bring them certain nutrition. Clinical dietitian Natalie Overstreet says a healthy lifestyle doesn't start out as an obsession. Typically, the person tries to avoid becoming overweight or getting a certain disease like diabetes. But it just spirals out of control as you add more and more rules. You start becoming um, more strict with just everything has to be pure. And as a result, they can lose drastic amounts of weight and become deficient in certain vitamins and minerals. They tend to start cutting out whole food groups altogether, like dairy, um, bread, grains, things like that, simply because of the way that they're processed. Licensed counselor Becky Henderson says those who suffer from orthorexia make their food choices out of fear. If, if they are truly eating healthy, then 
that should lead them into more freedom. And the condition doesn't just impact their health, but their social life as well. You don't go out to eat with your friends because you're not going to eat what's at the restaurant. You don't have potlucks at work. Experts say a healthy lifestyle is all about balance. Let yourself splurge. Um, Food is supposed to be nutritious, yet provide us with a source of pleasure at the same time. And enjoy everything, even the healthy stuff, in moderation. In Tyler, Francesco Washington, East Texas News. So, joining us now live via Skype from Methodist Dallas Medical Center is East Texas News Med Team Dr. Ed Dominguez. Hey, Dr. Ed. Hi, Joe. All right, so like in the story we just saw, what starts out, I guess, is a genuine interest in becoming healthier. It can quickly develop into uh, a bit of an obsession, but this is different than going overboard because you want to be skinny. This is something different than just the desire to get thin. That's right. This, this is a desire that starts off, as we heard in the package, to get healthy, but then it becomes so restrictive that it, it goes way beyond getting healthy. People obsess. People with orthorexia nervosa actually uh, begin to obsess over all the components of a particular entree or a meal, the spices. Where did the spices come from? Are they organic? What about the meats? What about the vegetables? Should I be even be eating these vegetables? Are they organic? When you begin to obsess about all those components, uh, which should be preferences, and, and you begin to make them absolutes, that's when we begin to, to experience problems and, and people have this disorder then. So, Dr. Ed, in your expert opinion, when do you think it becomes too extreme when it comes to healthy eating? And what tips would you give someone who could fall in this category? Well, I think, as we heard in the, the story, too, Jennifer, that the most important, one of the most important things is, is the social interaction, the social effects. We've seen this with anorexia nervosa. You see it with orthorexia as well, that it really begins to limit who you go out to eat with, where you go to eat. You even bring your own food for some of these meals. That's going to really limit your options. If you begin to lose weight to the point that your, ba- your body mass index is less than 16 or 17, that's unhealthy. So it's very important to seek assistance. Seek nutritional assistance from a licensed dietitian who can help you achieve your goals without being so restrictive, and then also seek counseling from somebody who certainly specializes in movable disorders, uh, I mean in eating disorders. Uh, Hemingway wrote a book called A Movable Feast. He didn't write a movable fast, and I think we have to focus on the fact that food is very healthy. We can make it healthier, but we shouldn't obsess on it. You were so well read, Dr. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Thanks, Dr. I don't know what the hell these people are talking about. I mean, I, I, I guess there is kind of the pain in the ass, uber yuppie out there that's like, I want to know where my eggs came from that are in this omelet, even though I'm... I mean, I, I guess. I don't know. But I haven't seen anybody that's concerned with healthy eating losing weight to the point where you might think they have anorexia. Uh, this is just mind-lumbingly stupid is what this is. This is an example of what the news covers when they run out of things to cover. And you notice what the overriding message is. The overriding message is trust clinical dietitians. So only a clinical dietitian is qualified to tell you what a good diet is. That's the overriding message in everything that's coming from the media and government anymore. You need a school teacher to teach 2 plus 2 and, and do it with Common Core math, by the way, and make it confusing. You need a dietitian to tell you what to eat. And you know what they kept showing in this video? You can watch it for yourself. They keep showing the food pyramid, which if you actually look at what the food pyramid is and you look at a bag of animal feed that's designed to grow a chicken into a fat chicken in nine weeks so we can kill it and make money off it, the makeup of the food pyramid's about the same. That's one thing. Now, the interesting thing 
They have two different women in this talking that are dietitians. The one looks like she's sick. She looks like she she looks like she's obsessive. She looks like her eyes are being held open with wires, like wide-eyed like a deer, and the headlights through the, the whole thing, and she does not look like a healthy person. The other one looks like your typical clinical dietitian who is probably not that healthy either. Um, I don't know. Basically what they're saying is that if you actually pay attention to what you eat, you have a disease now. That, that's what they're saying. Don't pay attention to what you eat. Eat what we tell you to. But there's a bigger thing at play here. Oh, my God, the social uh, limitations. Some of these people even bring their own food. So? So what? So You know what I would much rather have? I would much rather have a person that's coming to a potluck or something like that bring a little bit of extra stuff for themselves because they don't want to partake in some of the things that are there. Then to coming up, I can't eat that. I can't eat that. I can't eat that. I wish I could eat that, but I can't eat that. Do you know how bad that is for you? I can't believe you're eating that. Or they don't even go out to restaurants. I go out to restaurants. I eat paleo. It's not hard. It's called meat and vegetables. They avoid entire food groups. What? You notice what they didn't mention? They mentioned dairy, right? And some paleo people don't eat any dairy at all or eat limited dairy. But do you know what the one we actually avoid is? Gruel, bread, grain. It's not human food. It's not meant for people to eat it. But eat whatever you want as far as I'm concerned, honestly. And do I think there's any truth here? Yeah. What percentage of people that actually focus on eating healthy, eating organic, eating local, Weston A. Price style diets, paleo diets, etc. that fit into an actual obsessive compulsive type of eating? Less than 1%. Certainly ain't me, and it probably ain't you either. And just another example of the media trying to create a stigma where currently none really exists. You can't even go out with your friends if you eat paleo. <sighs> Please, let's take another one. As we continue to delve into Jack was right day, um, let's talk about another hot-button political issue that I told you not to worry about, even though it was a disaster, that it was going to happen, it was going to happen, it was going to happen, and that when it did, eventually, that those in opposition would sell it to you, and that those in opposition would actually make it worse by trying to fix it. And I'm talking about, of course, Obamacare, also known as the Unaffordable Care Act. Is that what it's called? Yeah, the Unaffordable Care Act. Um, So what I said is that the, the Republicans who are fighting this thing, and this is before it passed, by the way, would uh, one day turn around and tell you it's, it's, it's you know, we can make it better. It's, it's good for you. And would actually bring you greater government health care and bring you amnesty and many other things that they claim to oppose, and that you'd have a Republican president in 2016 do this. And we're on track for it right now. Um, this comes from Steve, and Steve says another one for the uh, – The Jack was right category, and um, it's on Washington Examiner. GOP candidate says Obamacare is here to stay. A Republican running in the hotly contested rate for an open congressional seat now says that Obamacare is here to stay. David Young, who is running for Iowa's third congressional seat, said at a health care forum on Monday that the Affordable Care Act, somebody should tell him, it's not the Affordable Care Act. It's the Unaffordable Care Act. The Affordable Care Act is, quote, 
is going to be here to stay, according to the Des Moines Register. The president is not going to allow his Keystone legislation to go by the wayside, so we're just going to have to work to make it better, he said. That is a marked change from Young's previous statement on the law. At a training event for activists in August, he said, we get a Republican majority, let's defund, cut, delay, whatever it takes to get rid of Obamacare. As of July, Young's campaign site called for a full repeal of Obamacare. The site's solutions page also no longer calls for a full repeal. Instead, it says that he, quote, believes Obamacare should be dismantled and replaced with market-based solutions. Young's Obamacare comment has drawn blistering criticism from influential Iowa conservative radio host Steve Deese. Who cares? Quote, by adding his opponent's talking points to his own, Young has effectively endorsed his Democratic opponent, Deese wrote, on his site on October 14th. The Young campaign did not respond to a request for comment. This is just the beginning. You're going to hear this capitulation over and over from Republicans. See, what they're going to tell you is, well, we got Obamacare. We asked you for the White House. We asked you for a majority in the Senate. And we asked you for a majority in the House. You gave us a majority in the House. You did not give us a majority in the Senate. You did not give us a, uh, the White House. We couldn't do it. It was impossible. And even in the, the lame duck portion of the president's uh, presidency, uh, even if we get uh, control of the Senate, even with the House of the Senate, we can't repeal Obamacare. We can't get enough votes to override a veto. It's not going to happen. We have to work with it. And then in 2016 when they take over, and they'll still be pandering toward the let's get rid of the Unaffordable Care Act thing, um, and they take over, amazingly they'll say, it's, it's just too entrenched now. It's been almost eight years. We're stuck with it. We have to work with it. And it is Republicans that will bring you a full government takeover of the healthcare industry. It is. The very people that claim to be fighting it tooth and nail all the way. Because what does it do for government to control the healthcare industry? It gives them one more place in your life where they exhibit control over you. And do you really think that any of the politicians in Washington want to turn down the opportunity to control the American people in any way, shape, or form? Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that your side of the dichotomy is more for liberty and freedom than the other, no matter which side you choose? Do you really think that Republicans are for smaller government when they keep giving you more government? Do you really think that Democrats are for increasing opportunities when they continue to take opportunities away? Do you really think Democrats are for increasing regulation on the big companies and freeing up the small companies when they continue to increase regulations on everybody and turn around and give waivers to the big companies? They are two sides of the same coin, folks. They are two heads of the same snake. They're going to bring you more of everything. And one will do what the other could not in the name of fixing the problem the other created. And this... This is not the first one of these GOP candidates to come out and tell you that Obamacare is here to stay. Is there anything good I can say about this Representative Young or prospective Representative Young or any of the other GOP candidates and GOP uh, uh, office holders who have said the same thing? Is there anything I can say about that that's good? Yes. They're not lying to you. They're telling you the truth. It's not going away. They have no intention of making it go away. And it's not just because they can't do it. Because the truth is, right now, 
If the Republican Congress in the House of Representatives wanted to shut this down, they could have refused funding on everything a long time ago. But that would be another government shutdown. Yes, I know. And they would shut down websites that cost nothing to run and do a big dog and pony show pantomime. Well, I say, look, if it's... This is what I don't get. We have people out there calling for outright revolution in the streets. Revolutions that would lead to bloodshed. But you're terrified of shutting the government down economically for a couple months to gain liberty and freedom back? Seriously? You're not willing to endure a lack of government services for 30 days, but yet you're willing to have a full-scale revolution? That's talking out of both sides of your face. The reality is the average American person right now doesn't care about anything until it affects them individually and personally. They like to complain a bitch about a lot of things that don't. But when it comes down to it, they are pretty happy as long as they're well-fed. They don't care if it's from a paycheck or a welfare check. As long as they're well-fed and they can be left alone to do as they please, they'll let government take every bit of liberty that they can. And I want you to think about this. What is government moving to control? Communications, travel, all walks of economic life, the media, the pharmaceutical and healthcare industry, the food industry. What else do I need to control to have complete and total control over you? If I control your food, your money, your communications, and your health, well, I might as well just hand you some chains, tell you to polish them, and be a good little slave and have you do it. That's the goal. That's the agenda. They even want to control where you live, how you educate your children, what kind of house you can have, what kind of car you can drive, transportation, freedom of movement. They want total, complete control. And the reason they want it isn't some kind of dystopian, totalitarian thing. It's because it's the natural progression of government. Once they control something, and it doesn't, it's like an addiction, okay? Government's like an addict. And once it gets control over something, it thinks, well, if I have this, I can make everything the way I want it. So they get it, and they try to do it. It doesn't work. I need a little bit more. I need a little bit more. You know, I didn't, I didn't just get, get high enough off that last injection. Give me another speedball. Give me another speedball. Give me another speedball. That's your government. They'll take more tax, they'll take more freedom, they'll take everything they can get, and the people that have a different initial after their name are no different than the ones you think you're fighting. The GOP has thrown you all under the bus about Obamacare, and every word that was uttered by every single one of them about fighting it, repealing it, getting rid of it, Doing the right thing, protecting our citizens, the free market was all 100% complete and total bullshit. And remember that in 2016, when they come tell you from both sides, this is the most important election in history. And ask yourself, have you heard that before? And what have the results of those most important elections been? No matter who's won, you've pretty much gotten the same thing. Bigger government, more spending, more infringement upon liberty and freedom, and more lies. More lies, more lies, more lies. 
Let's take another one. So I want to finish up with something a little bit encouraging. Uh, I talked earlier about how the United States of America is supposed to be a republic and the way that a republic works. And that a state like Florida, by offering certain freedoms, liberties, protections, services, or even regulations and laws, would make itself more attractive to certain people, and those people could go to Florida. And with freedom of movement within the Federal Republic, that a person might say, I don't like that, so I'm going to go to New York or California. <laughs> yeah, right. Or I'm going to go to Texas, or I'm going to go to Georgia, or I'm going to go to Washington, or I'm going to go to New Mexico, wherever. They would go wherever Life was best based on what they wanted, not just because of the climate or whatever but and job opportunities, but also the, the way that the states run. That if, if, if one state got in the way of them doing what they really loved and another state said, come do that here, they might go there. And the more of that we would have, the greater the liberty our nation would have. And, and it's, it, it, there's no questioning why that's been eroded and gone away. Because they don't want that. You understand that? They don't want you to have that freedom and liberty. That's a problem. It's a problem. Because then you'll make choices, and then you'll actually be able to see certain things. And we have some vestiges of it. So, like, for instance, Colorado legalizing marijuana. There's been a lot of hubbub made about some of the things they've, you know, they've made mistakes with, like, you know, saying we're going to regulate something with no plan to regulate it. Whoops. I think part of it was they didn't think it would pass. Um, but, you know, they're working that out. And what you're noticing is Colorado isn't exploding Um, crime isn't going through the roof. Uh, nothing really that big a deal is happening because some dude's getting a buzz on some Mary Jane. It just isn't. So other states are starting to go, do we really need to be sending people to jail for smoking pot? And don't tell me nobody goes to jail for smoking pot. Because I'll find you some people that went to jail for smoking pot really, really fast. Okay? Do we really need to be worrying about some guy growing a couple plants and selling some leaves? Do we really need to worry about this? I mean, they told us the whole world would end, and it didn't. So that's an example of what's left of a republic. Whether you think it's good or not, the fact that Colorado has that freedom, and your state maybe has the freedom to say, we will not have that here. Well, that's great. If you want to smoke dope, go to Colorado. You don't want to smoke dope, come to Texas. We'll be the last state. Maybe Oklahoma. Maybe Oklahoma would hold out longer than we will. But we will be the last state to legalize marijuana here in Texas. I don't think that's a good thing. I'm just telling you, based on the population and the bias and the influence of the religious right, this will be the last state to legalize marijuana, even though I think the sum total of mentioning of marijuana being bad in the Bible is like zero. It will still be the last state because we've got to have morality. That's the actual objection that I've heard from many on the, on the right on this. But it's great. I don't have a problem with Texas having marijuana be illegal. What I have a problem with is the federal government telling all the states you will or you won't. I think that you know the the ninth and tenth amendments are really clear that unless they're prohibited from doing something by the Constitution, the states are free to do them. And if the federal government isn't specifically given a power to do something at the state level, it doesn't have it. Right? That's it. That's it. And that just because the right isn't directly protected by the Constitution, unless the government's given authority, it doesn't have it. That's how it works. It's very, very simple. And this creates this republic model. I think that the republic would be much stronger, though, if people had freedom of movement throughout the world. Imagine if nations could compete this way. Imagine if people really had freedom of movement between nations. 
Like, if you just wanted to go set up a business in Mexico or open a bank account in Mexico and set your business up in Canada, and as an American citizen, you could just do that, right? Well, you can't do it right now. It doesn't work that way. There's all kinds of ways that are gotten in the way. But I reported that Estonia was looking towards launching an e-residency or virtual citizen program. They've now made it official. It's a real program. It's really here. It's going to become more and more available over time. Let me read this to you, and I'll talk to you why I th why, about why I think it's a good thing, even if you don't directly care about Estonia as the nation. The Republic of Estonia will be the first country in the world to offer what it calls e-residency. For about $63, the Baltic state e-residents will have access to the country. Digital service is an opportunity to give digital signatures in an electronic environment. This will include access to services like online banking, education, and healthcare, according to the International Business Times. In the European Union, digital signatures from Estonia e-residents will be considered legally equivalent to handwritten signatures. This gives you, I just want to pause for a second and tell you what it does. It gives you and I the opportunity to enter into contract as Estonia virtual citizens outside of the realm of other nations and have at least Eastern Europe or, or have at least Europe recognize that for now. Okay? Estonia is marketing the e-residency toward entrepreneurs. Well, you would because they're productive, right? And others who may do business in Estonia but don't want to commit to legal residency and citizenship. It's part of Estonia's e-Estonia initiative, a collaboration between government and the country's ICT industry, which aims to make Estonia one of the most digitally progressive countries in the world. The government of Estonia is quick to point out that e-residency won't guarantee legal residency or citizenship. And to apply to become an e-resident, you'll need to pay an in-person visit to an Estonian police or border and border guard office to submit your application there. Within two weeks, a decision will be made, and you'll have to return to an Estonian police and border guard office to pick up your e-residency card. The government of Estonia says it's working to add capacity to its embassies to be able to process applications for e-residency abroad within the next year, though. So right now, you can get one. But you have to go to the Estonian border and do it. But what they're saying is within the next year, you'll be able to go to the Estonian embassy in any country. I think they have one in the United States. And do it there, okay? The e-residency card isn't your typical physical identification card. It doesn't even have your photo on it. Instead, it has a microchip with embedded security certificates and has two-factor authentication. According to the Estonian government, these certificates enable the card to be used with a small piece of software installed and a reader attached via USB to a computer. Estonia will start issuing its e-residence digital identities by the end of the year. All of Estonia's legal residents who are 15 and older already have electronic ID cards. Estonian hospitals issue digital health insurance and birth certificates for newborns, too. And, as the Economist reports, no security breaches have been reported in over a decade since the country started using digital ID cards. All right. Part of this is very Orwellian. It really is. If the U.S. starts doing this without a bunch more countries doing it to compete... It bugs me. Because this is your whole life on an electronic card that we can shut off, right? So much for the, the microchip in your hand. How about your wallet, okay? So that's what this really is because 
If you actually talk to the Estonian government, they'll tell you there's no law that says you have to have this card. If you don't have one, they don't throw you in jail. They don't make you get one. You just can't get anything done. So that would mean that if, if, you, if you have to have one to get things done, and it's all electronic with a chip, and the chip has a number, and that number is you, and they got tired of you for some reason, all they have to do is turn off your chip. That has a lot of religious people with their hair up on their arms right now. I don't know. If you're religious, maybe it should. Um, when I look at this, though, I see a totally different side of it. I see the country of Estonia saying, let's make it a global republic. See, the, the beauty of a global republic is it would not be a one-world government if it was done this way. In other words, we will give you e-citizenry. You can deal with our banks. You can enter into contract law within our government system. You can... You could freely choose to be, and by the way, you don't have to just work with us. You could choose what parts of your life to move into the Estonian framework of government. And then you can choose to do other frameworks of your life elsewhere. Voluntary association. I think, now, don't think I'm pie-in-the-sky optimist right now, okay? Because I don't think it's going to happen. I think this could be how anarchy could work. Well, anarchy is when there's no government. No, 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 no. Anarchy is when all government is voluntary. All agreements are voluntary. All obligations are entered into voluntarily, right? Everything is done essentially through contract in an anarchist society. I'll choose who to be part of, who to do business with. Well, well then what if somebody robs from somebody? Well, maybe that somebody has chosen to do business with somebody that says, if somebody robs from you, there'll be repercussions. They can't steal from you. You know, if you think just stealing in anarchy is, is one and the same, you don't understand anarchy. I, I, I get why you don't understand it. Nobody would want you to. I, I, I am, as I say often, an anarchist in principle and a minarchist in practice. I don't think society's ready for anarchy. But I think this type of thing, not, the, not the, the technology so much, but this type of thinking is how you get a global anarchist society where people choose where to go with it. I think the way that it really works is cast off the boundaries of land and geography. I'm back to my concept of virtual nations now. You know, I, I, I talked about Libertas, a virtual nation that we created as a thought experiment in a prior episode. Why not? What makes you an American, a Canadian, a Mexican, uh, a, a, a British subject, uh, an Australian citizen? What makes you that? What, what actually makes you that? Is it freedom of choice? For some of you, it is. Some of you have immigrated to your home, home nation now, and you have said, I want to be a citizen. Most of us have made, been made citizens by birth. And we're supposed to be proud of that. We're supposed to bang a drum. Right? We're supposed to bang a drum and be happy and salute the flag and say the Pledge of Allegiance. And if I see one more Facebook meme about how we'd be better off if everybody said the Pledge of Allegiance, I was going to drive me crazy. Why are you an American? Why are you a Canadian? Why are you an Australian? And if the answer really comes down to, well, it's where I was born, then what choice did you have in signing up for what that means? 
You might say this is very unpatriotic. Well, I am pretty proud of the fact that America's history comes from the founders and what the nation would be if things like the Constitution were followed and if the nation was governed under the concept of the Declaration of Independence the way it's supposed to be. I'm pretty proud of that lineage. But when I look at my nation, do I see that today? Do I feel like my government is acting within the bounds of its Constitution? No, I don't. Do I feel like we're following the advice of the founders, remaining free of entangling alliances and not interfering and intervening in the, the affairs of other nations? No, I don't feel like that. So what exactly am I supposed to be patriotic about? An ideal or reality? Which one am I to be a patriot of? The ideal of America or the reality of America? Please don't tell me they're the same thing. Because you're going to have a hard time getting from point A to point B there with me. So why not create a virtual nation to do voluntary business, voluntary contract, voluntary conflict resolution, voluntary education, voluntary services that we're told only government can do. What if we really can do these things for ourselves? What if we really can resolve conflicts without the threat of violence at the point of a gun? What if we really can fund initiatives without the threat of violence at the point of a gun? If you've never heard that term before, you need to understand something. Current forms of government and every form of government that's ever been known can only do things with the threat of violence at the point of a gun. And if you think that's reactionary, let me ask you what happens if you don't pay your taxes. Men with guns come and get you. And they do something to rectify the fact that you didn't pay your taxes. So every single thing that's paid for with taxes, is done with the threat of violence at the point of a gun. Now, it doesn't mean that they have to threaten you with violence at the point of a gun to get you to buy into some of the things they're doing, but it means to get you to buy into everything that they're doing. They require that. And I want to ask you honestly, honestly, without any of false patriotism you know, twisted in your mind, I want you to just take all your patriotism for a minute, no matter what nation you're from. And I want to have an honest conversation with you at the end of today's show. I want you to put it in a package and set it on the shelf, and you can shove it right back in as soon as we're done. I just want you to set it aside. Not get rid of it. Not throw it away. Just, just put it in cold storage for a few minutes. And I want to ask you an honest question. If I took away your government's ability to use violence and force against you, is there anything that you're required to do today that you would cease doing? And is there anything that you would like to be able to do today that doesn't harm anybody else that you would do more frequently, more often, or do at all? In other words, are there actions that you wish you could take that government prevents you from taking? Okay, And are there actions that you do because government forces you to do them? And if I removed the power, would you behave differently? And every single one of you that's being honest has just said, yes. The real honest ones among you said, oh, hell yes. Okay, That means that your government can only accomplish what it accomplishes 
in the effect of every citizen with the threat of violence at the point of a gun. What if governments had to make their case that what they provided was necessary and only people who wanted that affiliated themselves with said governments? This actually would not have been possible a hundred years ago. It really would have. How do you do that? In a world of technology, in a world where 90% of things can be done now with technology, electronically, we're in a place where we could do that. Well, what about somebody breaking in your house? Okay. Okay. We can, we can handle that with local authority. Fine. I'll, I'll give you that. But can't we do most other things without a physical state? Who would, who would build schools? Do we need schools like we have anymore? Do we really need, I, I just, again, if you have some kind of like attachment to the education system, you're a teacher and you derive your livelihood from it, pretend you don't for a minute. Let's be completely honest. Let's back up 20 feet and say, do we need to spend on one high school in Texas, for instance, where my son went when they built that school? $63 million to jam 4,500 students a day into one campus. They spent $63 million to build it, not to employ the staff. Do we have to have that to give kids a basic education in 2014? I think anybody being honest would say no. So do we need the state to mandate education at all? I'm not even saying that the state of Texas or Florida or the federal government can't say, this is our recommended method of education, and here's our institutions for doing that. I'm just saying that the people that participate in those should be doing so voluntarily. And that if I don't want to participate, you should not be able to compel me to. It's not practical, is what somebody will say. But if Estonia can make you a citizen of Estonia for $63 and a background check, then why can't Ecuador make you a citizen of Ecuador? Why can't I choose to do business with Party A as an Ecuadorian, and choose to do business with Party B as an Estonian, and choose to do business with Party C as an American citizen? The actual only reason against that right now is one of those nations telling me I'm not allowed to. See, there's nothing that, that harms Party A from doing business with me as an Ecuadorian. If they don't want to do business with me as an Ecuadorian, they can say, I'm sorry, I don't do business with Ecuadorians for whatever reason. Okay, fine. Would you like to do business with me as an Estonian? Yes, I would. I prefer that environment. Great. Let's do our contract. Let's do our agreement. Let's do our whatever under Estonian guidelines. We're both familiar with those. We're both comfortable with those. We think this is more preferable to us. Let's do it there. What gets in the way of that? The United States of America going, we own you. See, what you've been sold is a lie. You see your citizenship as a privilege and a right. Something special that you own. I own my citizenship. No. Your nation owns you. Your nation is the one that says you can't have a bank account in Australia. 
Not the Australians. Now, it's true that the Australians won't do business with you with a bank account, but it's because they're like, it's just too much trouble to do business with you, but it's your country that made it that. It's the United States government that says you can't go open a bank account or a business in Australia without being very, very wealthy and part of the elite that are the people that wrote the law that supposedly protects you from them that actually only affects you. It's your government that owns you, not you that own your government. Do you understand that? When you go out and build something of your own and profit from it, It's your government that says you are required to pay them your hard-earned money as a tax to them. It is not you that has given them permission to take the money. It is not you that has voluntarily paid the money. And you really get no say in how the money is spent. And don't give me this bullshit about a democracy. Because you don't. When's the last time your government did something you were really in favor of? And for many of you, when the, the last time that did happen... How did it work out? You were in favor of it. They did it. Did it actually do what you thought it would and what they told you it would? And I think if you're being honest again right now and you've taken the false patriotism and put it on the shelf for a moment, you might be having a very hard time figuring that out. And if you're going back to something like the Civil Rights Act, first of all, they caused the problem. And second of all, that was in the 70s. So if you're finding yourself having to play historian to come up with something right now, What have they done for you lately? See, I do think we're entering a new age. And I think we're entering a time where our liberty and freedom can be more oppressed than ever or we can claim more of it than ever. And if we're going to, we're going to have to play their game. We're going to have to do things like do business as e-citizens of other nations when it makes sense for us without some false patriotism holding us back. I don't know if I want to become an Estonian e-citizen or not. But if it makes sense to me, I will. And I won't be called unpatriotic for it. I will call myself a smart business person for doing so. And Ecuador is about to release a virtual currency. I don't see Ecuador very far away from introducing something just like Estonia has. I think they're definitely going to do something similar. And Ecuador's move is big because as they move toward Ecuador coin or Equator coin or whatever they're going to call it, Um, Cuenca tokens. Some of you know what Cuenca is. It's a cool place. Um, they're leaving the U.S. dollar behind. That's what I don't think. That's what I don't think people get about the the big story with Ecuador leaving the the the, the dollar is what it's really about. By going to if if Ecuador has e Ecuador currency, why do they need the U.S. dollar anymore? It'll probably trade on the street for quite a while. But honestly, with with international dealings and with foreign entrepreneurs and things like that, why do business in dollars in Ecuador? You must just do business in the United States, right? Because it's their money. But if you can go in and do business in, in Ecuadorian coin, why wouldn't you? If it makes sense for what you're doing. So it's, it's really, really important, guys, that we do not let false allegiances prevent us from utilizing new technologies and new opportunities. And I think that if we're waiting on the governments of the world to ever create a program like that that will be perfect for us, we're making a huge mistake. I do think, though, you'll see more and more virtual nations rising up. I think um, permacredits is going to evolve into some form of a virtual nation. BitNation uh, is already on some type of a, a, a sale of um, 
the sale of basically equity in BitNation, and you can only buy the equity in BitNation with Bitcoin and exchange it for XBNX, equity, uh, in BitNation. And BitNation aims to, and I don't know if they'll be successful, but what they aim to do is provide a platform that's borderless, decentralized, and voluntary. And with that platform, we could then say, let's say you and I wanted to enter in a business agreement. We want to set up a website and sell uh, uh, virtual widgets, right? Whatever it is, doesn't matter. But it's something that doesn't physically have to be delivered. And we decide we're going to do all business with Inside BitNation. Well, theoretically, we should be able to set up our corporation Inside BitNation, only do business in some sort of virtual currency, have all conflict resolution taken care of, all of our contract obligations are there, and any other business that we do inside that nation really is no business of Estonia if we're an e-citizen, the United States if we're an actual citizen, or Ecuador if we're holding some Ecuador coin. It's not their business. The minute we take money out of that system or value out of that system and bring it into this world of the physical, then maybe they have some say over it. Now, are they going to go quietly into that good night, or are they going to fight this? Of course they're going to fight it. But how do you fight it? How do you fight it when it starts springing up everywhere, and they actually start providing the services? You've told people, we're the only ones that can do this. The private citizen can't provide this. And they do it. And they do it better than you. And they do it with a voluntary relationship. It gets very sticky for the governments of the world at some point now, doesn't it? But yeah, I'm not saying that Estonia is something we should all line up to become e-citizens of. I'm going to look into that one more. But I think the entire concept of virtual citizenry, whether it's virtual citizenry of a land-based nation or virtual citizenry of a cloud-based nation. For those of you familiar with Star Wars, think about Cloud City. It might have been more prophetic than we realize. What if there were cloud nations? Just something to think about. And I think, again, the real value of thinking about virtual nations is if we can start to figure out how would they work, we start to figure out how to replace many of the apparatuses that right now are only delivered to us with the threat of violence at the point of a gun. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Revolution.